The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Good evening, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine, podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And today we have a wonderful program planned. Our uh, guest is Dr. Dean Schruffnagel, who is professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Sleep and Allergy at the University of Illinois. And we're going to be talking about what I was told in my fellowship is one of the defining problems of pulmonary medicine. Uh, What my old program director said is, if you know TB, you know pulmonary. So we're going to be talking about what was previously called latent tuberculosis, stage zero. I think I'm finally going to find out what the proper way to refer to people who have converted their PPDs or have positive interferon tests but do not have evidence of active disease. So let me say hello to Dr. Schroffnagel. And this interview is a companion to the editorial that Dean wrote and will appear in the May issue of the Annals on latent tuberculosis infection is a term that should go dormant and the significance of latent tuberculosis should be rethought. So uh, let me start by asking Dean, uh, you say in your editorial you don't like the term LTBI, latent tuberculosis infection. Why not? Yes, the, the term LTBI has now been used for a decade or more, but it is really not a very good term. Uh, as you just mentioned, latent tuberculosis is a clinical state which a person has immunologic evidence of tuberculosis, but no symptoms or signs of disease. The uh, immunologic evidence is really a positive tuberculin test or an interferon gamma release assay. And it's not exactly true that they have no sign because they can have some radiologic signs, which would include apical capping, hyaluronidopathy, and granuloma, but there's certainly no evidence for acute disease. Now, LTBI stands for latent tuberculosis infection, and the word infection here is used to mean a lack of disease. The problem that I have with this, and and a few other people too, and I mentioned in the editorial, is that this is neither good English nor good biology. It's bad English because the word latent already means no manifestation of active disease. So if you use the word infection to mean the same thing, it's merely redundant. However, really nowhere in the English language does the word infection mean lack of disease. And so I think we should drop the word infection. It's not just a semantic thing, though. My main concern is that the term signifies an entity that's not taken seriously enough. The problem with lack of disease part of the LTBI implies lack of concern. And latent tuberculosis should be something that we are concerned with because it's the main source of new disease uh, in that people with latent disease become active and, uh, of course, are not detected for a while and then spread the disease to others. Now, uh, I'm always confused. Well, first, first let me ask you, what, what do you think it should be called? 
clinical communication? Yeah, I would just call it latent tuberculosis. And I would say it's like latent syphilis. Uh, it's another good word, a good term. And it's not so different. I mean, it, it is different, obviously, but they're both granulomatous diseases. They both have a latent period. They both have not a really that different prognosis or the ability to reactivate and cause the serious uh, problems that they do. However, every doctor would treat, or almost every doctor would treat latent syphilis, and yet so often many of our, even our TB experts say, uh, do not treat latent TB. One of the uh, confusing areas is what exactly is latent TB? Are there TB organisms still within the body? Is that always the case? How do you think of latent TB in a pathophysiologic sense? Yeah, I think that that's a very good point because latent TB, at least as I define it, but this is general standard, is a clinical state. No signs and symptoms of disease, as I said. However, the important thing is that tuberculosis, whether there are signs or symptoms, is a bacteriologic continuum. This means that both latent TB and active TB have a mix of replicating and non-replicating organisms, organisms that are undergoing oxidative and reductive metabolism. Those are the physiologic definitions of, of replicating and non-replicating, or dormant and active. Now, one of the examples of this is that isoniazid has no effect on dormant organisms, yet it works for the treatment of latent TB. And how does it work? Well, it must work by killing only those that are active or non-dormant. So it has to, probably that's why it takes so long, is because as these organisms go in and out of a dormant state, when they're in the non-dormant state or the active state, they're killed by INH. And when they're not, then it just takes a lot longer to treat them. Furthermore, that both replicating and dormant bacilli mutate at a similar rate. Uh, this is recent work that as the being shown as the organisms uh, are becoming better known in these two states. Well, let me ask you, is there any particular location that these dormant organisms are thought to reside? Can they live anywhere or we, we just don't know that? Yeah, I don't think we know so well. I, I think it is interesting because there have been some papers about a variety of things, for example, suggesting they may be in adipose tissue, and they're generally thought to be in granulomas, in uh, dormant or granuloma that are not active or, you know, have been around for a while. And certainly Robert Koch back in 1882 uh, was able to show cutting into, you know, into granulomas could he could isolate the, the organisms from there in, in persons who had dormant tuberculosis. So it's typically thought of that, but it's really not known. And the other question you asked is, does everyone with latent uh, TB have organisms? And that's not very clear either. It's, they're in such low numbers that we can't, can't really determine that. And people with latent TB are, are not all the same. For example, a person who is a new reactor has a likelihood of progression that's relatively high 
compared to somebody who has been positive for many years. But generally, people would say that most people with latent TB do have active organisms or do have organisms in their body, and that it is quite likely that treatment uh, kills probably kills all or most or all of the organisms, although it's not possible to determine that. How uh, should the diagnosis be made? Who, I'll say who, which is kind of a broad topic. Uh, uh, it is thought that there are billions of people in the world with latent tuberculosis. So uh, I guess we'll limit it to the U.S. How should we, as clinicians, be making the diagnosis and does that depend on whether we're doing screening of uh, high-risk populations or even I, I see today people are having uh, screening done as part of routine annual physical exam. So there's a, a few questions here. First of all, the estimation of one-third of the world is supposed to be infected with TB is probably not accurate. The World Health Organization actually stopped putting that in their bulletins probably almost a decade ago. And this was based on some uh, tuberculin testing that was done. Uh, the, the main paper was by Christopher Dye back in, I believe it was in the 90s or 80s. And with the confusion with the BCG and the presence of inter, the use of the uh, interferon gamma release assays, it's probably significantly less than that. At least in the United States, it's, it's very much less than that. However, it is common, and the second question is, what about screening for it? Now, if we start screening low-prevalence populations, we uh, will have a lot more false positives than false Negative. So I think everyone is agreed that we don't generally uh, screen low prevalence populations because our tests, which whichever tests we use, will not serve us well because of the uh, false positives. However, it's so common that it's probably a, a primary care physician's concern. So if a primary care physician has a somebody who has a positive uh, tuberculin test or interferon gamma, they should offer them treatment. And if the person uh, wants treatment, then they should treat them. That's quite different than screening large populations of low prevalence individuals. I would not screen, except that so, if... So um, is, yeah. I'm, I'm, just a question that occurred. Should primary care physicians be testing uh, as part of a routine exam? If there's a low prevalence or low risk, probably not because of this false positive. However, the World Health Organization, uh, you know, came out with uh, the right to know your status for HIV as a, and, and recently has come out with the right to know, everyone has the right to know their tuberculin status. So if someone comes in and asks to have tests, or if you think they might be at a higher risk, then uh, they should be tested. And I would recommend everyone who is positive, with very rare exceptions, those persons should be offered treatment. The rare exceptions would be individuals who might be unable to follow directions, might be unable to tell you if they have some side effects, and therefore might be at an increased risk. The other reason why I say that 
I treat everybody is this is different. We don't use, or at least I'm not using INH for nine months anymore. Most of the time, we're using rifampin for four months. In, in Britain and in Europe, they're using rifampin for three months. And then we're using rifapentine for 12 doses. And this is has better patient acceptance and lower side effects and equal efficacy. So that changes the game or changes the recommendations for treatment. I wouldn't probably like to be treated for nine months if I had a low risk of developing active TB, but with 12 doses of rifapentine, it's not so bad. Is and that with scale the other way? Is that with INH or rifapentine? Yes, it is. Alone? Yeah, no. The studies were done, the main study was done in the U.S. with INH and rifapentine, one dose uh, each week for 12 weeks. And that's the, the standard, and that's what we use. Uh, although I'm not so sure that the INH contributes, and there are ongoing studies of the rifamycins alone, both rifampin and rifapentine. But for right now, our standard treatment is rifapentine plus isoniazid, weekly doses for 12 weeks. And do you use observed therapy when that's the case? Yes. Or? That's a very good point, because if you miss one of the 12 doses, you're missing about 8% of your dose, so we do directly observed. So we have the people come into the office, you know, Monday morning or something like that. We give them the medicine, and then off they go. Or we also use video-assisted or video-assisted observed direct therapy so that people can use their iPhone, and we can watch them uh, with one of our software programs as they take their medicine. That has some limitations, too, because of, of HIPAA and so forth, but if the person who is taking it is agreed to that and understands the risks of, of loss of confidentiality, then uh, several areas or several programs have gone uh, along with this. So uh, one important question that that I have is which test for tuberculin or tuberculosis reactivity is best or do you consider the PPD and the uh, gamma interferon tests equivalent what actually is the data and, and what do you do yeah well the, there's now uh, an extensive literature on the interferon gamma release assays and when you compare them head to head with PPD, they do better. But when you look at the subgroups, the main reason for them doing better is because of BCG. So BCG results in a positive tuberculin test, but it does not affect the interferon gamma release assay. So many centers, the other big advantage of the interferon gamma release is that they're easier to administer, easier to uh, follow. And even though tuberculin is very cheap, most tuberculosis control programs and uh, medical centers have opted for the interferon gamma release assays because in the long run, the uh, extra personnel makes them cost effective. The extra personnel required for the tuberculin tests makes the... Uh, interferon gamma release assays uh, cost-effective. The interferon gamma release assays have not been approved for kids under five, and yet 
there have been, oh, I'd say at least eight studies showing that they are effective. The problem is that they haven't been approved by the FDA for kids under five, and as you get younger, the immune system is less developed so that children under five have less reliable PPD as well as interferon gamma. And as you get less than one or two or one uh, infancy, then there is more difficulty or more lack of reliability of any immune test for TB. So what our practice is, is we use the interferon gamma release assay. We do, except for children, we use PPD. Now, PPD, the reason we use it for children is because it's easier to do a skin test than to draw blood from the kids. And so kids under five, we uh, use the um, PPD unless they've had a BCG, we're concerned about it. And then we, we may use an interferon gamma release assay down to probably, oh, two or three years of age. And if you separate out the effects of BCG, then they're, they're really not so different. And, of course, if you take out the um, people who don't come back to read their PPDs, then the interferon gamma uh, assays win out there too. But for programs that are using skin tests, and are very comfortable and are very uh, efficient with that, then I think that's just fine, except with the problems with BCG. And then you can use a confirmatory test if you really have a, uh, a result that you don't trust. I practice in an area with a very high percentage of immigrants, and it has been my practice, and I'd like to hear what you think uh, about this. If the PPD is positive... And many of the uh, patients just aren't sure whether they got BCG. Uh, so I uh, usually, when someone is referred to me with a positive PPD, I confirm it with uh, one of the interferon assays. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I'd mm-hmm. kind of like you to comment on it. Yes, I'm... Uh director of tuberculosis for DuPage County, which is the second largest county or most populous county in Illinois. And we have a large immigrant and refugee population as well. We almost exclusively use interferon gamma release assays, except for those kids under five, as I mentioned. And then if they're positive and they have a high risk, we would treat them. Now, if you were practicing in a low-risk setting, and this was the article that is published in this uh, month's annals by Gamsky and and colleagues, in a low-risk population or a low-prevalence population, they're going to have a high number of false negatives because the negatives outweigh the positives so much that a uh, a false negative is going to be more likely than a true negative. Now, in that case, so if you don't think you have active TB, you could use the other as a confirmatory, you could use a second test. So you could do a, um, if you did an interferon gamma release assay, you could do a tuberculin test. Or if you had a tuberculin test that was positive, you could do an interferon gamma release assay. The other is that in the sort of converse is often practiced too in somebody who has something that says they're very likely to have TB and they want to, and the first test is negative, they may try a second test. 
too. Although in that case, most of the time I would just treat them because I realize that energy is, is oftentimes part of a TV picture. So if somebody comes in with cavitary disease, fever, etc., that looks like TB, I would not be dissuaded from treating them if either of those tests were negative, especially if they're very sick. One last question I, I feel I, I have to ask. How do you use the uh, chest x-ray in uh, stratifying uh, these patients, determining what kind of treatment, or, or is it not relevant at all? It is. It is. In fact, one of the basic axioms of treatment of latent TB, or the first rule is, I guess the first rule is don't harm the patient, so you have to be very alert clinically to monitor the patient. But the second rule is to do not treat active disease. So we don't want to treat active disease with one drug. So if there's any signs of activity, then you've got to treat for active tuberculosis. So you, uh, you are screening family and you get a positive tuberculin test or a positive interferon gamma release assay, then everyone gets a chest radiograph. The chest radiograph has uh, some alveolar opacity or perhaps scarring that you can't quite tell if the person's got active or latent. You have to treat them for active. Uh, I mean, obviously you can do sputum and so forth, but even if there's a scarred x-ray or alveolar opacity in which you, you really couldn't rule out active disease, then you have to treat them unless there was, you know, they had a history of being treated and so forth. But no, I, I use the radiographs for uh, those who are positive. If you don't believe the disease is active, does uh, an abnormal uh, chest radiograph change duration of treatment or what you might use to treat the patient for latent disease. You believe it's latent, one patient with an abnormal x-ray, one with a normal radiograph. Yeah. No, and generally you would not. Generally, um, you would say they get, they're both latent TB and you would treat both of them. However, this problem of not being able to separate active from latent out is, is not infrequent. You, you get somebody who maybe had a remote history of TB treated for a couple of months or something like that inadequately and then is asymptomatic but has a radiograph that has some consolidation, for example. That person would get treatment for active disease. Uh, I mean, and we would try to induce sputum and so forth, and if the sputum was there, but even if the sputum was negative, if the radiograph looked like it could be active, then they would probably get treatment for active disease. Well, I think we've had a uh, really wonderful discussion, and as usual, I always learn a tremendous amount. I want to thank Dr. Schroffnagel for spending the time with us, and we look forward to uh, reading his editorial in the May issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. So uh, this is Dr. Alan Fine wishing you great evening. Thanks uh, for having me. Thank you, Dean.